So when a baby is born, they have that belief, I'm going to wake everyone up at 3 a.m. because I'm bored or I'm hungry, I want some attention. But I mean, I have a friend called Sammy Shoebox, and he's called that because he was put in a shoebox and left on a rubbish tip in Thailand. And he cried for three days. And people heard it and they thought, well, that's a cat. But after three days, well, that cat has never stopped. And they went and they found this little shoebox with a baby in it, sent him to America. He's adopted. He's now a very famous DJ because he cried for three days, not three hours. They have a belief someone is going to come and pay me attention because I'm Today's guest is Marissa Peer. Speaker, best-selling author, columnist, and advisor to the stars. They reward achievement, never effort, which is completely the wrong way around. You should reward effort. The kid that spent eight hours on a project should get the prize, not the smart one who spent half an hour on it. But they want you to be good at everything, get an A in every subject. Um, I've been watching you for so long now, and you've helped me a lot in my life. Um, so thank you for coming. And uh, we, we've, you know, we've been looking forward to this for, for, for a while. Um, so I'm going to just jump in straight away um, into your early years. Because understanding the transition that you made from your early years to who you are now, it's pivotal to really kind of illustrating your story for the Redefined series that we are doing today. So what's your early years been like? So children learn what they live. They have no choice. They have to learn what they live. So I consider myself very lucky that I had two teachers. My mother was a wonderful woman. She was a hypochondriac. She was always sick. She was very unhappily married to my dad. My dad was very unhappily married to her, but he had a job that was just, he loved his job so much. He was a teacher. And I'd always say, you know, helping people is what life is all about. Life is about helping everybody. And of course, I looked at both my parents. I saw my dad utterly fulfilled, was in love with his job. And I thought, that's what you've got to do. You have to find a job that's engrossing. So when your relationship was never if, it was when it goes wrong, you've got this great job to console you and take away the pain. And my mother taught me that, you know, never depend on a guy, don't depend on your looks. So she was very beautiful. But she was very unfulfilled. So I was always going to go down the career track because my father was happy, my mother was unhappy. And so my early years were looking at my dad thinking, I, I better be like him, because he seemed to be like Teflon. He was not unhappy at all. And I guess from the outside, uh, we had a little house with a white picket fence. It looked amazing, but inside it was a bit of a train wreck. But I'm really glad, actually, because it taught me something. And what it taught me was that you know, when kids don't feel loved or appreciated, they don't stop loving their parents. They stop loving themselves. And so. I founded the I'm Enough movement because having been a therapist my entire adult life, I realized very quickly, my clients taught me that all their issues came from one thing. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not interesting. I'm not attractive. I'm not good enough. And of course, I felt that. My dad was a head teacher. His whole life was caring for other people's kids. So I understood very quickly what that's like as a child to feel that you just don't matter and you're not good enough. And my mum was unhappy, so clearly I didn't please her. My dad was always at work. And of course, when you're a child, a child feels this, daddy is always at work because I guess I'm just not good enough for him to be at home. Mummy's never here. I guess I, work is more. Mummy's always crying. I guess I'm not enough for her. So I, I picked that up myself. And the problem is when you pick that up when you're 8 or 9 or 10, you don't suddenly at 11 go, oh, or 25, that was then, I'm enough now. You keep it forever. This, I'm not enoughness will ruin your relationship, it will ruin your mental health, your physical health, it'll ruin your career. So I was very lucky that I definitely had it, but I realized how to get over it and get rid of it. And then I began to think, well, I better do that for everyone else as well. 
Nice. So my childhood really gave me a great insight into how we pick up we're not enough. Okay. And, and, and I take that, that kind of taught you a little bit about human behavior. Yeah. Um, from, from, from those early yeah. stages. Okay, fine. Um, it taught me the key thing that when children's needs are not met, they don't blame them, they blame themselves. And then you have to learn how to undo that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've experienced that quite a lot in my families because we had toxic people, but it always came from my mom. So it was yeah. not, it was not, it was not, it wasn't so much direct toxicity, but it was more through my mom. So how do you, how do you cope with, and how do you kind of fix that when it comes from somebody that you really love, uh, the toxicity which is not direct to you, but it's kind of directed from somebody else to you. Well, it has to come from someone you love because if you didn't like them, you could leave them and never see them again and go, well, they're toxic. I'm never going to have anything to do with them. It's when you care about them, or they're your parent, you can't really bail out until you're at least seven, sixteen. So you're sort of stuck. You know, that's, I always feel sorry for children of narcissistic parents because they can't leave. You've got a narcissistic girlfriend. You can go, but when it's your parent, you're stuck there. Yeah. And that's what happens. You know, when you're a child, you don't have many needs. You have maybe six. A little baby needs to feel safe, loved, connected, and significant. That's pretty much it. And when that little baby is about three, they start to have a few more needs. Safe, loved, connected, significant. But also, I need to be seen and heard. I need to be celebrated. I need one person to be proud of me. And if those needs are not met, very quickly a child has what's called a learned helplessness. I'm never going to be safe, loved, connected, significant. It's just never going to happen. So they give the need up forever or they go, well, I better find someone else to make me feel loved or significant. So they give it up or they give it away. And the only way around it is to start doing it yourself. I can make myself feel connected, significant, and safe. But the challenge is that no one tells you what to do when kids don't have these unmet needs and they have them for their entire life. You know, I've had so many clients say to me, I never ask for anything. Well, what do you, nothing. But then I'm never disappointed or I've given up on love or I've given up on work. I've given up because as a child, you, you're kind of helpless and hopeless. You can't fix anything. But those children go through life with that same belief, which isn't even remotely true. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I, I felt that through my, through my life. I've experienced yeah. that as well. Tell us a little bit about your teachers and mentors and what help you've got. Because when you don't have the right kind of individuals in your family to be able to yeah. direct you in the right way, what, do, what did you do to kind of help? Do you know, I was very lucky because for everyone in the room, you need one person. It's lovely to have three or four, but you need one. And for me, I had a grandmother who thought I was a genius and she always believed in me. And I realized later I'd have been a delinquent if I didn't have her. But you need one person. So for everyone here, if you can be that one person to a child that says, I believe in you, I see something amazing, you, you're smart, you're funny, you're worthy. It doesn't have to be your child. It could be someone else's child. Because the quickest way to grow self-esteem is through praise. And you can be a mentor to a child. In LA, my husband and I were being advocates going through the court system with children who had nobody. And there was a, so many of them had no one turn up in court with their own kids. So, but I had some great mentors. My first was my father, because he showed me that helping people is the joy, the purpose of life, and for him it was immense joy. Then I met an amazing hypnotist called Gil Boyne. He was a genius, and he taught me hypnotherapy, so he certainly changed my life. I met an amazing guy called David Viscott, who was an incredible psychiatrist. I mean, I used to call him the terrorist therapist, because he just got right to it. So that's rubbish. Your husband's an idiot. When are you leaving him? He just didn't go around the 
can I hold your hand? He's like, he's an idiot, you need to leave. When are you leaving? And I loved him because he just in five minutes would dissect someone. He's like, can I tell you the truth? Your husband's a loser or you've been completely corrupted or you blew it. And so I loved the fact that he was very honest. So Gilboy and David Viscott, Tony Robbins, I know him very well. He's an amazing guy. He used to send me all his clients that he didn't like when I started out, and there was quite a few of them because he could really pick and choose. Wayne Dyer, the most amazing guy, such a big heart. He was kindness personified. I mean, there's a lot I'm forgetting, but I would say those, those four were my real mentors. They taught me a lot. Yeah, I think with clients, you have to tell them the truth. And when they go, oh, my boyfriend loves me so much, but I can't go out. I go, well, how does he stop you? Well, he won't let me leave the house. I'm like, well, you're a free person. So when people come up with this, because they have excuses for why, they have this word, but, I could do that, but, or I should do that, but. Yeah. And so you have to be tough and say, you can never say the word, but again. Yeah, understood. Okay, fine. So where, where do, when these problems happen, where do they come from? What are the causes of these problems? Well, no baby is born saying, I've got these triple knees here and no teeth and no hair, so clearly I'm not enough. A baby will look at you with its nose running, its nappy leaking, and think it's the most gorgeous thing in the world. Just like a little puppy or kitten will come up to you and expect you to love it. So it happens very quickly. Children are born with one belief. Here I am, I mean, when you're in the womb, it's like being in the four seasons. It's always 75 degrees, you've got 24 hour room service. So when a baby is born, they have that belief, I'm gonna wake everyone up at 3 a.m. because I'm bored or I'm hungry, I want some attention. So we know that babies are born certain that they matter. They demand attention. If you shut a baby in a cupboard, I mean, I have a friend called Sammy Shoebox, and he's called that because he was put in a shoebox and left on a rubbish tip in Thailand. And he cried for three days. And people heard it and they thought, oh, that's a cat. But after three days, someone said, well, well that cat has never stopped. And they went and they found this little shoebox with a baby in it, sent him to America. He's adopted. He's now a very famous DJ because he cried for three days, not three hours. And that is the truth of a baby. They have a belief someone is going to come and pay me attention because I'm worth it. So how does that go away? Well, it goes away with parents who start to say things like, well, your sister could read when she was five, your brother didn't get peas all over the floor. And schools are even worse, they stream children. They reward achievement, never effort, which is completely the wrong way around. You should never reward it, you should reward effort. The kid that spent eight hours on a project should get the prize, not the smart one who spent half an hour on it. And schools do a lot of damage because they put you in a grade. They grade you like eggs, A, B, C, D and E. And they, they want to be good at everything, which is not possible. A scientific kid can't be artistic. An artistic kid can't be scientific. But they want to be good at everything, get an A in every subject. And I think the whole education system in about 10 years will be completely changed because it's so damaging. And then you have the worst of all, the media, yeah. where they say, well, you've got to have fat hair and thin legs. But if you've got fat legs and thin hair, they go, well, no, that's not right. And the media does, and there's a lot of good, they do so much damage with comparison. You have all these comparing sites, like, when am I an eight, am I a five, do I matter? And every day we get overexposed to fake images of perfection that make us feel we're not enough. Yeah, okay, no, I totally So those three that, things, yeah. parents who do their best, but they have yeah. no clue. Nobody wakes up and says, where's Google? I'm gonna fuck up my kid. There must be something I could do. 
But without meaning to, that's exactly what they do. So parents, schools, the media, those three things. Yeah. But there's no schools to teach you how to be a great parent. And I know you're doing some great stuff to kind of tackle that yeah. problem. Can you go, go through a little bit about that as I well? mean, as a parent, you only need to know really two things. All your kids ever want you to be present with them. You know, get off the phone, get off the computer. They don't care if you're making them, if you're purring organic broccoli and teaching them Mandarin. They care about one thing. Can you be present with them? And secondly, you need to praise them a lot. But not, oh, you're the best kid in the world, but hey, I notice you're really good at art, or you're very kind to your sister, or you're very good with the cat. Because that's how they grow, by being acknowledged and praised. But we have this belief, if you praise kids, you ruin them, yeah. which isn't true. And how do you think the, pa the COVID pandemic has affected that? I think it's been terrible for children, especially. You know, there are some babies who've never seen anyone without a mask, and everyone stayed home. And in fact, the countries like Sweden and Dubai, who didn't do that, didn't really seem to impact them. I think COVID, there was some good stuff. We learned to be home. We learned to think, oh, I can quite like being at home. I don't need to go to the city. I quite like, I mean, when I, when I had to go out again, I said, I've got to go out. I got so used to being in, the idea of going out was like weird. But I think it was very bad for a lot of people, especially young people, because when we're born, our DNA requires two things in order to survive, and that is find connection, avoid rejection. The minute you're born, you are hardwired and coded to find connection and avoid rejection. But in COVID, we all found disconnection. Yeah. And that's really bad for humans. They thrive on being connected. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I've heard you say sometime, um, I think it was on a podcast or something, about cure comes from curiosity. Yeah, the word cure comes from the word curious. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like a lot of kids, when they grow up, they forget how to be curious. Yeah, um, and adults too. And adults too, exactly. Um, what, what are you doing to kind of, what is Marissa doing to kind of bring that back and get people to become more curious? Well, we trained 15,000 RTT therapists all over the world, and I was telling them the same thing. The most difficult clients are your best teachers. And be super curious. Go, oh, you're so fascinating. I noticed that your body language changes, and you go, nothing works. You can't fix me. And so if you get curious with people, you, you learn to understand. And if you say to them, never what's wrong with you, but what happened to you? What happened to you to make you like this? What's going on with you? So. Be curious, what, what happened to you to make you do that? What's going on in you? Yeah. And if you're curious rather than judgmental, you always get the right answers. Yeah. And about people to be curious. When someone is really mean and difficult, you have to understand the truth that mo most people who don't feel good enough, they only have two choices, diminish you or embellish themselves. So you have to get curious. Why do you get pleasure diminishing? But what is it about you that makes you need to embellish yourself? Yeah. And if you ask them in a nice way, not a judging way, they'll tell you, oh, I like being a bully because I need to feel superior, because if I'm not superior, I must be inferior. They haven't quite got it that actually being equal is the way to be. Yeah, got that. That's really nice. Um, so when they come from, let's say they, they've gone through the pandemic and the mental health crisis going absolutely crazy right now, um, and they... they do, so I, I know that you then treat purpose rather than what they're actually the cause is. So you treat more about the purpose. What is your purpose of doing something? Um, and then that's how you kind of ta tackle it and then you go in and then you find the cause through that. 
How, what does that look like through the RTT training? Well, you know, I've never met anyone yet who's depressed because they have a chemical imbalance in their brain. And any good doctor will tell you there is no way to test for a chemical imbalance in the brain. You, that wasn't, doctors didn't invent that, that was a drug company. But in my experience, it's only mine of 30 years, I found that all my clients who were depressed had three things. They didn't have purpose, their life didn't have meaning, they used harsh, hurtful, critical words on themselves a lot, and that's guaranteed to make you depressed. They were very dismissive of themselves. They lacked connection. And the third thing is they didn't ever follow their hearts. So they go, I wanted to be a doctor, but you know, I had to go into the family firm. I wanted to be a tennis player, but I had to be in the family accountancy. I wanted to be this, but I just couldn't do it. And it was a lack of purpose, failing to follow their hearts, as I was one of the number one causes of depression, closely followed by disconnection and really being down on yourself. And so when you can turn around and go, well, what is your purpose? Why are you here? Because everyone who's born has something they're meant to do. When you can find out what you're meant to do and be amazing at it, you feel like you never work a day in your entire life, but that's not always easy to find out but here's a clue, what you love to do in the age of seven and 14 is a good insight into what your gift is, what your skills is, and what you're meant to do. But then we have teachers who go, well, you should do this, and there's no money in that, and that's never going to work, and you can't possibly do that. And so, you know, you, you have, your life has to have meaning and purpose. And I think as a therapist, I'm very lucky, my life has phenomenal meaning and purpose because I help people. When you can go to bed and like saying, wow, someone in the world has a better life because of a skill I have. So last year, I got an email and it said, hey, you know, this program you're doing for schools is up for an award for the most innovative thing in education. I got into bed and I was thinking, well, that's 1,600 schools. How many kids even is that? I had no idea what the number was because maths was not my great skill set, but I was trying to imagine 1,600 schools. 1,600 schools, maybe they had 100 kids. And I didn't know, but I felt so good. I thought, wow, that's my whole thing. I've managed somewhere in the world of these kids having a better life. Because a skill I have, not me, but a skill I learned, and a skill that 15,000 therapists are using all over the world. And it's like, that was, that was real purpose and meaning. Nice. Let's dive in a little bit into rewiring your thoughts. Yeah. What was that moment in your life that you realized that you could redefine yourself? Do you know, when you question a thought, you straight away don't believe it. So when your kid starts to go, but mummy, how does the reindeer get down the chimney? But mummy, how can that be? I've never seen the Easter bunny. Where is this tooth fairy? When they start to, when you question anything, you don't believe it. That's why in some religions, they don't like you to ask questions. It's like, nope, that's just how it is. And a lot of schools are like that too, and parents. I do it because I told you to, because I said so. So the minute you question a belief, you don't believe it. And a thought is nothing more than, a, a belief is nothing more than a thought you think a lot. So also question thought. So I learned to do it by saying, well, who told me that? Was it ever true? And even if it's true for them, does it have to be true for me? So I think, the, you know, I was told I could never, ever have a baby. And I remember thinking, well, well, who said that? And what do they know? And is that really true? And is there anything I could do around it? And then I did have a baby very easily. So I wrote a whole book on defying you know, the prediction of infertility. Then when I had my baby, 
I was in hospital being told I could never have a baby. I was absolutely blissed out. And this nurse came up and she gave me some Kleenex. She said, that's for postnatal depression. You get that on day three. I said, well, I better go home then because I have that at work, a sea of weeping. I don't need to have it here. And I said, I'm not having depression. I've signed up for postnatal euphoria. She goes, no, no, you'll definitely have it. Everyone has it. And it's that thing of questioning somebody. You know, I noticed that you've got a cast on your leg, and I got run over in December. And they said, well, you won't be able to walk for six months. But you're going to have one leg shorter than the other. You never wear heels again. You'll definitely have arthritis. And you have to go, you know what? I'm not letting that in. Because even if that's general, that doesn't have to apply to everybody. Same thing, you know, I've had family members with cancer. You know, you've got a 25% chance of surviving. So you go, okay, I'm going to be in that 25% then. So it's not giving someone else the agency. Learn to question everything you're told. Who said that? Is it true? I mean, when I was growing up, they used to say in Cosmopolitan, you've got more chance of being an adult Martian than finding love over 50. But that's totally untrue. That, you know, your fertility falls off a cliff when you're 32. That's not true. You can get pregnant right up until you're 52. It's harder, but it doesn't actually fall off a cliff. Because if it did, you wouldn't have all these women pioneers having 18 babies. I don't know when they thought they started, but they were still having babies in, in their 40s 100 years ago when actually they were more like someone of 50. So you just have to keep looking at thinking, oh, this is a thought. This is a belief, but a belief is nothing more than a thought, I think. Is it a, a fixed belief? Is it a fleeting thought? Can I change it? Can I change it? Can I defy it? And then you've got to, you see, first you make your beliefs, and then your beliefs make you, and then we have something called confirmation bias. You start to look for proof of what you believe is true. So people say, oh, I hate cats. You know, I've got someone looking after my cat. She goes, I'm not a cat person. Now she goes, oh my God, I want to keep your cats. I just love them so much. Yeah. So she's changed her belief by being exposed to my cats because all they've known is love and they're very chilled. So you have to decide, okay, if I make my beliefs and they make, I better make better beliefs because I'm going to find proof of what I've chosen to believe. So your mind's a bit like a ladder. So first you have a thought. Thoughts always come first. And your thoughts create your feelings. And your feelings create your behavior. So it's thoughts, feelings, behavior. It has to go that way. Feelings don't come before thoughts, apart from two, the fear of loud noise and the fear of falling backwards. You can't have a fear of dogs unless you're exposed to dogs. You can't, babies will put a cockroach in their mouth. They don't know fear. They'll go straight out. They'll crawl straight out a window. Thought feeling, behavior. And what you've got to do is change the thought. So when I was in Estonia last year, I was teaching schools from all over the world how to change kids. So I, we had a big triangle on the floor, like a huge triangle in masking tape, and three flip charts. So this is good for adults too. And the first flip chart was a thought, second was a feeling, thought was a behavior. So all these kids who were nine had to write down a negative thought. And i just give you three. I'm an ugly kid. I'm a stupid kid, I don't have any friends, okay, so that's your thought. Now run to the next flip chart and write a feeling that you feel. If you wake up and think, I'm an ugly kid, I'm a stupid kid, I can't have any friends. And the kid who said she was ugly said, I feel hopeless, I feel defeated, I feel sad, I feel angry. There was no positive feeling, by the way, there never is. You can't think a negative thought and feel good about it. And now run to the behavior. And the behavior was I cry, I act out, I'm super defensive, or I just spend all my time by myself. This is one who couldn't have any friends. 
And they kept running thought, feeling, behavior, until they realized very quickly, oh, the thought comes first. So now let's flip the thought. If you think you're ugly, just say, I'm, I'm really attractive. Think you're stupid, just, I'm going to write, I'm super smart. And the one who said, I have no friends, said, everybody likes me because I'm magnetically lovable. And then they ran to a feeling, and they said, well, I feel pretty good. I feel brave. I feel confident. I feel good. I feel courageous. I feel happy. Now run to the behavior. And the kid who said he was stupid said, I asked the teacher for help because I'm smart. The kid who said she had no friends, and I asked everyone for play dates because how could people not like me? And the one who said she was ugly said, I think I look really cool when I look in the mirror. So if a nine-year-old could get it, you've got to flip the thought. It's no good flipping the behavior or the feeling because the thought comes first. But if you can flip the thought, and we can all flip a thought, I have a terrible memory, I remember everything. I've got a useless immune system, I've got a phenomenal immune system. If I look at a cake, I get fat. I have a phenomenal metabolic. Whatever your negative thought is, just flip it. Even if you don't believe it and say it because your mind doesn't know, and it really doesn't care if what you tell it is true or false, it makes it real. Do, should we show you a little demonstration? Yeah, absolutely. So everyone put their hand in front of their mouth and just close your eyes. Nothing bad can happen, this is just a simple thing. And with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine you're holding in your hand half of a big, fat, juicy lemon. I want you to breathe in and smell that wonderful lemon smell. I want you to squeeze that lemon so hard that drops of lemon come to the surface. I want you to quite literally stick out your tongue right now and lick off all those drops of lemon. Open your mouth as wide as you can and shove that half a lemon into your mouth and start chewing out the flesh. I want you to suck all that lemon juice all around your mouth. Bite into that lemon, suck it, extract all the juice until your taste buds swell and pucker and keep eating every single bit of that lemon. Chew the flesh, extract the juice, swirl it around your mouth. Keep eating that lemon. And then just open your eyes. This is a question you can't get wrong. Put your hand up if there was a lemon. You can't get it wrong. Put your hand up if there wasn't a lemon. Put your hand up if you never put your hand up, whatever the question is. See, here's the truth. There wasn't a lemon. You're correct, but there was. You're also, but where was it? Where was the lemon? In your, your mind. Your mind didn't go, there's no lemon. This is stupid. Your mind went, oh my God, a lemon can wash away tooth enamel, and that can actually kill you because 500 years, you didn't have teeth. You were, there was no juices or Nutribullets. You didn't have teeth. You were pretty screwed because you couldn't eat yeah. nuts or hard fruit. So your mind said, that's a lemon. It's going to ruin your teeth. Let me wash away the acid. And it didn't care if it was real or not. Your mind doesn't care. It doesn't care, it doesn't know what, if you, what you tell it is good, bad, helpful, hurtful, useful, useless, it lets it in. I would say your mind is a bit like hot toast. And when you put butter on hot toast, the toast can't reject the butter. Who's got, ever had toast because I'm not letting that butter in? So if you think of your mind like the hot toast and your thoughts are the butter, your mind has nobody to not let them in. So that's your job then to flip them. Your mind's job is to make your thoughts real. That's his job. Do you know what your job is? Think better thoughts. Think better thoughts. Because, you know, we know that. If you think of something sad, who thinks of something sad and their eyes fill up with tears? 
Who thinks there's something embarrassing and they go bright red? They go, oh God, I'm so embarrassed, I can't believe I did that. Who thinks there's something physical, like se who thinks of sex, by the way, and notices their body starts to make that real? And if the guys here don't put their hand up, I feel very worried about them indeed. For a man, when they think about sex, they, the body immediately turns into a physical reaction. Every thought you think has a physical reaction and an emotional response. Who thinks about food and their tummy rumbles? Yeah. And here's the biggest one. Placebo, every year, placebo gets stronger, stronger. What you think about a drug has more of an effect than what's in it. You can take amphetamines and say this is a sleeping pill and sleep. You can do the opposite because what your mind thinks a drug is going to do will affect you more than actually what's in the drug. So if we know that, that our mind's job is to make our thoughts real, and we should know what our job is. Think better thoughts, flip the thought. I'm going to be rejected, I can't be rejected. I'm going to fail, I'm going to learn. I'm not good enough, I'm amazing. And it's okay to fail, it's okay to get things wrong. Yeah. It's not okay. You know, you, you can choose to be negative or positive, but what you, if you could see what it did to your body to think negative thoughts, you'd never do that. Because while you can choose, I'm going to be negative, positive, your body can't choose. When you say things like, oh, I always get the flu, always get ill, I've got such a sensitive stomach, I'm always reacting, I get virus, every virus going, if I look at a cake, I get fat, that's going to make me sick. And my mother was my teacher, look at everything, that's going to make me ill, I can't eat that, I can't do that, I can't stand that. And my father guy never get ill, ever. And he never did get ill. One of my friends years ago, her husband said, no food, because we've got food poison. He said, my body wouldn't dare reject any food I choose to give it. Wouldn't dare. I thought, what a great belief. I'm going to have that belief. I love that. And so you've got to choose. You can say, I've got a terrible immune system. Or you can say, I've got a phenomenal immune system, because your mind will make it real. So when you think negative thoughts, don't beat yourself up to say, oh, that's a negative thought. I'm chronically tired. I'm exhausted. I'm starving. These things are not true. Nobody here is starving. You can't be chronically tired. You can't even be exhausted unless you never get sleep. So you need to say, I'm dehydrated. I, I am a little tired, but I'm going to have great sleep. I'm a little run down, but I've got an amazing immune system. You know, everyone said in COVID, there's no defense. Of course there is. It's called your immune system. And if you say, I've got a freaking amazing immune system, you're going to start to get any illness because your body and mind are listening. Just like thinking of something sad and getting your eyes filled up. If you say I've got a great immune system every day, your body has no choice but to make your immune system stronger. Absolutely. Yeah, and I totally understand that firsthand coming from an autoimmune background. Yeah. And initially conventional medicine couldn't help me much, but then I, and I said, no, I'm actually going to do this. And I started saying to myself that I will live long. I will yeah. find the cause of the condition. Yeah. And I've come to a point where I'm managing it now through my thoughts yeah. and you know, various different things, which is super exciting. Uh, so in this room, in this, um, in the MDN, this lovely place, we've got lots of entrepreneurs and founders. Yeah. Um, and what can they do to kind of help for, to get help redefine their lives? And tell us a little bit about the triple A process. Okay, just one thing. If you keep saying it, my body is a wellness-making machine. My body does wellness, only wellness, always wellness. Keep saying that, you don't have to believe it. Think of it like the butter sinking into the toast. It's like if you had dry skin and I put balm on it, your, your body doesn't reject it, it sinks in. It nourishes you, but words are the same. 
So if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking for investors and you're starting out, you've got to keep saying the same thing. I'm a genius. This product is amazing. The world is going to love what I have to offer. If you have a product that helps people's pain point, then that's what people want. Everything we buy, also the exception is because of how it makes us feel. Like we could buy shoes from Tesco, but we want them from Nike. We could buy cheap stuff, but we want stuff that makes us feel good. And we'll pay for things that make us feel good. So if you make a product that makes people feel good, if you can make a product that lowers someone's pain point, it's like there was a book ages ago called Thin Thighs in 30 Days. I mean, obviously, that's not really possible. People bought that book because it was a promise. And people don't buy books, they buy promises. They don't buy products, they buy a promise. Buy this, you can have any person you want. Buy this and you'll look amazing. Buy this, everyone's going to love you. So what, if you have a product, put a promise in it somewhere. Have a promise, take, lower someone's pain point, make sure your product makes them feel good. And, and then, you know, to be successful, you've got to do three things. The first is the most important. You have to say, I'm worth it. You have to get that mindset. If somebody wants to buy my product, invest in my product, believe in me. But they won't believe in you until you do it. So the first step is always just take some time every day. When you're in the shower, it's good. It's a very meditative state. You've got to, what else are you going to do in the shower? Go, oh, I love this grapefruit conditioner. You might as well take that time to go, I'm amazing. I'm a visionary, I've got a great idea, I've got a product people are gonna love. And really believe in yourself a lot. That's the first step. The second step is to imagine you have a screen and you're looking at what you want. Because many people go, I wanna be a millionaire, I wanna do this, but they don't look at it properly because anything you want will require to learn something new. Anything you want will require to do. So for instance, I wanted to be a writer. But when I looked at it, oh no, I don't want to be a writer. I want to be a best-selling writer. I want to be a best-selling writer of books that help people. So I became more and more clear, what do I want? Not just to write, to write books that help people, to write best-selling books. So what's the point if they don't sell? And then, of course, I understood that if you want to be a best-selling writer, you have to learn to be a speaker because today, no publisher will sign you up if you can't go and give talks and go on blogs and promote your book. So I have one goal, but that if I look at it, I think, oh, I need to learn this. I need to learn search engine. What are people looking for in a book? And I realize they're looking for a promise. I can make you thin. I can make you young. I can make you happy. I mean, what was that guy who wrote all the books about pulling women? What was that called? He talked about negging. Um, not it, sure. Even though he's a guy who's in jail in Romania now. Is it Andrew Tate? Andrew Tate, I mean, yeah. I didn't believe in that, but you know how clever he sold a promise. By this book, you can pull any woman in the world, even if you look like Quasimodo, and people believed it. It's a promise. Okay, I'm buying it. I'm signing up. So that was a negative example of something that works because he really believes he's worth it. So believe you're worth it first. Take a deep look at what you want and understand what that requires of you. And finally, when you think, okay, I want to do this, but I've got to learn this, do that. I've got to learn what the market is looking for. I've got to learn search engine optimization. And then the third step is to go and do it. But you can't do step three if you haven't done it. Well, you can't ask for it. I mean, my daughter is an artist. She's very successful. I'd say to her, darling, you've got to put your art on and walk around. I don't want to do that. I said, I know. 
but to succeed you've got to do what you hate and people who succeed will do what they hate people who fail will give up their dreams because I'm not doing that I couldn't walk into a gallery and go hey do you want to look at my art they might say no but they might say yes and the only risk in life is to not take the risk but it's hard to do step three put myself out there ask for help ask for money ask for investors it's not hard if you do step one I'm worth it, I deserve it. The universe gave me a talent, and I can monetize that talent if I believe I'm worth it, because 80% of success in life is down to the mindset of I'm worth it. Yeah. You know, do you remember on Dragon's Den, the little suitcase trunk in, they said, this is terrible, the strap's broken, it's only a prototype, no one's gonna buy that, and he was so offended by that that he went off, and you see Trunky everywhere. Yeah. He didn't take no for an answer. He did what he did a lot of work, yeah. even though they tried to humiliate him and shame him. Many people who were laughed off Dragon's Den, like the guy who invented Tangle Teasers, have done really well. Yeah. But you have to have, you have to be like a big rubber ball. Have you got the bounce back? Can you come back? Because success is not about never failing, it's about exactly how quickly can you get back up. Someone says your product is rubbish, they don't like it, who cares? Yeah. Someone else will love it. Awesome, thank you for that. And I know you've got a book coming out soon. Um, tell us a little bit about what to expect from your book. So my new book is called The Rules of the Mind, and there are 26 different rules of the mind. And some of them are more important than others, but I'll tell you my favorites. First one is, what is expected tends to be realized. I think my favorite one is, every thought you think is a blueprint that your mind, your body, your psyche work to make real. And another one is the strongest force in every human is you must act in a way that totally matches how you define you. So if you don't like it, change your definition. Your words shape your reality. I don't like your reality, change your words. You know, changing your words is easy, it's fast, it's free. You don't have to do, you don't have to do 100 sit-ups or go and get styled. You just have to change your words because they shape your reality. So, so many rules of the mind, but they're probably my favorites. Emotion is more important than logic. That's an amazing one. The emotion is way more important than logic. In a battle between logic and emotion, emotion always, always, always wins. Logic never wins. So you, you can't be logical about you. You've got to be emotional. So if you have a toxic parent, you think, well, I've got to feel very sad for that parent, but my job is to be absolutely different, the opposite in every way. Having a mother who was a hypochondriac was good for me because I, I don't like being ill, I don't really do ill. If I get ill, I recover super fast because my mother showed me how not to be. So sometimes the worst parent can be a great teacher. And sometimes having perfect parents doesn't really help because you don't have anything to aspire to. I love self-made people who come from nothing. They're much more interesting. We, we like people that say, I came from nothing. Wayne Dyer always said, you know, I was in an orphanage and I had nothing, but I could, things could only get better. And um, Nigella Lawson said, I'm sorry people have had a great childhood, because it ruins you. For me, my childhood was so bad. This is Nigella, not me. It was so bad. Nothing could ever be as bad. If things could only get better. Nothing could ever be as bad again as my childhood. An anorexic mother, an absent father. But for her, she said, my friends who had a good childhood were ruined by it. Mine was so bad. It could only get better, and I love that. What a great way to think it can only get better, because if your life is a big clock, a massive clock, your childhood is really the first eight minutes. That's it. You've still got another 52 minutes to change. When people say, 
your school days are the best days of your life. No, they're not. They're awful for many people. They're horrible. Things all go downhill. No, the world doesn't go, Here, here's your life. The first bit's great, and then it's all rubbish. That's not true. It gets better and better. My life is better now than it's ever been. So you, if those beliefs make you, you're going to make your own beliefs. You can be successful at any age. You can find love at any age. You can make some wild product. I mean, who'd have thought you'd become a billionaire just from shaping eyebrows like Anastasia? Who'd have thought that James Dyson could look at a vacuum cleaner and go, oh, well, my wife's cleaning and she takes out the bag. It creates more dust. I make a dustless cleaner because many millionaires don't even, they don't invent stuff, they just change them, it's already out there. Yeah. And it isn't about going to college, it isn't about being a genius, it's about looking at something, could I improve that? Could I up-level that? Who would have thought you know, there'd be money in filthy, dirty old trainers? But there is. Who would have thought there'd be, there's money in so many things that we never thought of, and this whole idea of having to come from wealth or university and then the other block I see with people who want to start up is you've got to be spiritual to make money. Yeah. But that's not true. My daughter got married last year at a place called Wilderness Reserve. And the guy who owns it made all his money in estate. And he wasn't spiritual at all. He was an estate agent and he made a fortune. But a lot of people who make so much money go, well, I've got all this money. What shall I do with it? He said, I know. I'll rewild swathes of Suffolk. And that's what he's doing. But he became spiritual because he had money. So don't think I've got to be spiritual to make money. If you make enough money, you can be spiritual afterwards. You can open children's homes and orphanages, and you can rewild whole swathes of the country. So we, people have this guilt about money. Oh, it's too much, or who am I yeah. to have it? But if you're going to do something good with it, because that's another thing, if you want money and you think of what you do that's good, the more good things you can do, the more reason you can do it. So for us, you know, if I wasn't successful then, I could never have that program in schools because that we pay for that. We pay for the um, training, we pay for the videos, we create. We have this program called the cheerleader where these children put a cheerleader in their head that believes in them. And we make the cheerleader toys. But I could never do that if I hadn't made lots of money being a therapist. Oh, therapists shouldn't charge money. No one says um, and doctors and anaesthetists shouldn't charge money, but they say, oh no, it's a noble profession, you should do it for nothing. But that's not right. So you've got to get over your money blocks. You know, your beliefs about money are wide entry, but before you're five, when parents say, I want, never gets. But then what about squeaky wheel gets the oil? Whatever belief you have, you'll find another one that contradicts it. Yeah. Rich, we talk about those fat cats and that rich bitch. You know, we've got this real thing about money, but money is amazing. You do so many good things with it, so you've got to get over that. Yeah. Filthy rich. So when your parents said things like, I can't find the money, I don't know where the money's coming from, we haven't got enough money, we can't find the money, money doesn't grow on trees, that's super confusing to kids. Yeah. Or the, the other thing parents do, you know, they go, you can make money by washing all the dishes and taking out the trash, but then kids learn, oh, you make money doing things that you really hate. So you've got to really, again, with your money beliefs, who told you that? Men don't like women with money. Well, that's not true. That used to be true, but it isn't true now. So you've got to look at your belief. What, what do I believe about money? Because my father had this belief that he would never pay for parking. He always bought reduced stuff. And I, because he had this belief that it would run out yeah. and he would hold on to it really tight. He didn't like to spend it. But 
you have to change your resume money comes and I'm very good with it and I make more. So look at your beliefs because you all have them. Question them and then change them. I mean, who here can think of some crazy money beliefs they picked up as a kid? Can you? What did I your can. parents um, say? Uh, as in crazy money beliefs, is, again, it's become a doctor. I'm a qualified civil yeah. engineer, but I learned that lease options was for me. So I built my well, the little wealth that I have at the moment around lease options, which is not very popular in this country yeah. at the moment. Um, but yeah, over time, I pick it up. I'm a little bit conscious of time. Okay. Um, thank you so much. I could literally sit here all day. There's so much more I would love to speak to you about.